0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. Please remain standing with the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning at verse 17, uh, reading through to uh, verse 29. You'll find that on page 832 in your Pew Bible. This is God's Word. Let's give our attention to it. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as he had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me and they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered them, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do ask you now that you would open our minds and our hearts, open my mouth, make up what is lacking in each one of us, Lord God. Speak to us of the Saviour, of his blessed fullness, that we might see his glory, and we might see the power of his work in our lives. Lord, fill us this day with a new sense of love and appreciation and wonder and awe for our God and King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're coming to the climax of Matthew's gospel, the passion narratives, then the resurrection. But in preparation for those occasions, which happen in the next chapter, we find now our Lord at table with his disciples. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we're told in verse 17. And with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, goes the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover uh, sacrifice were, of course, the remembrance, the yearly memorial of the greatest event in the history of Israel, the Exodus, the great Old Covenant Day of Deliverance. And our Lord calls his disciples to this Passover meal. And yet during it, he institutes what we know to be The Lord's Supper, from Passover to Lord's Supper. The symbolism, I think, should be obvious to most of us, though we'll explore it somewhat this morning. The Passover lamb has been slain and eaten by our Lord, and yet during that meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper. He replaces the Passover lamb with himself. He replaces the Passover lamb with himself, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So this meal he's instituting is not a meal of deliverance from Egypt. It's a meal of deliverance from sin and Satan and death. It's a meal of deliverance that we enjoy not this day, but today as we've been removed from the power and curse of sin. And it's all centered upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's before us today. We see verse 17 to verse 25, and this is a change to your outline if you're using the outline. We see a sorrowful Passover. I'll explain the change in a minute. A sorrowful Passover. And then in verse 26, we're going to observe a prophetical Lord's Supper. We have then a sorrowful Passover. If you looked at the outlines, you'll see that this was originally entitled Early Passover. An early Passover. What do I mean? We have verse 17, the timestamp. It's the first day of unleavened bread, that seven day feast, which starts with the Passover and then goes on for seven days. The disciples want to know where they will celebrate Passover. Their answer is given to them straight away by our Lord in verse 18. He tells them to go into the city, find a certain man, tell him that the teacher says, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples obey him, and then verse 19, they prepare the Passover. Verse 20, they eat the Passover. So why is this then an early Passover? Well, the Gospels make it abundantly clear, especially John's Gospel, that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the next day, Friday, which was the day of preparation for what? For the Passover. For the Passover. That's to say the Jews would be celebrating their Passover on the Friday evening. Here, Jesus, verse 17, it's our Thursday. We can trace it through. Look at chapter 26 very briefly. Verse 17, they're celebrating Passover, which is the Thursday night. Verse 36, Jesus goes into Gethsemane that same night where he's then arrested. He's put on trial overnight into the Friday. Verse 57, the next day, chapter 27, verse 1, they take him to Pilate for a trial. And then later that day, they put him to death and John makes it abundantly clear in John chapter 19, verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation for Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. That's when they're putting Jesus to death. So, the Jews are celebrating their Passover on the Friday. Here is Jesus celebrating the Passover on a Thursday. Exodus is quite clear, Exodus chapter 12, it's to be celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. So what's going on here? Why the difference between our Lord's celebration and the Jew's celebration? Well, I've got two answers. One is, I don't know, and the other is I'll come to in a moment. The I don't know part took the most of my week, if I'm being honest, trying to figure, figure out what on earth is going on here. I was looking for some deep spiritual theological meaning, which I think still might be there. I've just not been able to find out what it is. So if you know, come and tell me. I'd be much obliged. Calvin says that our Lord is simply celebrating the Passover on the Thursday, on the 14th day of the month, in accordance to the law. Others say that the date of Passover was movable and could have been celebrated on the Thursday or the Friday. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But the one thing I can tell you about the significance of our Lord celebrating Passover on the Thursday, the day before the Jewish celebration, and we're told this in a sense in the text itself, is he says in verse 18, my time is at hand. My time is at hand. Tomorrow he knows that by the time the Jews... Uh, who have distanced themselves from Christ at his, uh, his crucifixion, there's not much of a record of them being present, that by the time they are sitting down to eat their Passover meal, Jesus will be being prepared for his burial. That's what he knows. My time is at hand. He knows what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. He's celebrating Passover on this Thursday, because he won't be around on the Friday to do it. That's at least one reason. And this is important to us because it contradicts the plans of men and fulfills the plans of God. Look back at chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. We read, "...they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said, not during the feast." feast is seven days not during the feast lest there be an uproar from among the people the plan of the jews was not to arrest jesus in this time span not to put him to death in this time span but frankly brethren there's a more important plan going on right now and it's the plan of almighty god it was the will of god that Jesus should die, yes, on the Friday, the day of the Passover, for reasons we'll come to in a moment. The will of God overcame the will of man so that the Saviour, the Paschal Lamb, should die on the very day Passover was being eaten. Here we begin to see the deep theology being revealed in this text. Jesus comes to eat the Passover with his disciples as he had done for the last three years, as they had done all their lives. Yearly, they came to eat the Passover. And I think principally speaking, the Jews of Jesus' day were focused on what had been. They were looking back at Passover, remembering the mighty works of God in delivering his people out of Egypt. They're looking back on the exodus, The Exodus is the greatest redemptive act in the whole of the Old Testament, yet Jesus' perspective is undoubtedly different. He's looking at the present. Thursday, he eats the lamb of Passover. Friday, he becomes the lamb of Passover. Thursday, he eats the lamb that God had provided. Friday, he becomes the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. That, that's to say, his death on the very next day was destined to be, planned to be, the very fulfillment, the filling up, the completion, the demonstration, and the accomplishment, not only of the meal they were presently eating, but of the events thousands of years before that that meal memorialized. We've said two things there. Jesus' death at the cross fulfills the Passover meal. And I think that might be something to do with the timing of his Passover and the Jews. He fulfills the Passover meal, wherein the lamb without spot or blemish was taken by the children of Israel, slain and eaten. Important. His death on the cross, he would take the place... Of those lambs, so that his his people spiritually might feed upon him. He fulfills the very meal they were engaged in. He also fulfills the events of the Exodus. Jesus calls his own death on the cross an Exodus, his own Exodus, in that he's providing an escape from sin and death for us. We don't escape from Egypt, friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ. We escape from sin and from death. So, friends, for Jesus on this night, this Thursday night, it was a time undoubtedly of profound spiritual turmoil, which we then see magnified in just a few verses' time in his time in Gethsemane and all the more turmoil because he now predicts to his disciples that one of them is going to betray them, betray him. Verse 21, we read as that eating. He said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Imagine if I said that in this sermon now. But what in the world does he mean? What is happening? But this is Jesus, the son of God, the teacher, the rabbi. And these are his apostles who have followed him for three years and suddenly he drops a bomb on their meal and says, one of you is going to re- betray me. And we read verse 22, they're very sorrowful. And, and privately they come to him one by one. They say to him, is it I, Lord? Just think on that. I don't know if they had any thoughts of betraying him apart from Judas. And yet he says, one of you will betray me. And they begin to ask the question, is it me? Am I going to be the one? And he speaks to them one by one. And he says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, I think that wasn't much comfort for any of the disciples, given that they're having a corporate meal where they're all putting their hand into the dish. There must have been some occasion where Judas especially did it, but I don't imagine that any of them could have said, well, I didn't put my hand in the dish at the same time as Jesus. But there was something peculiar about Judas' actions. The great sorrow, the irony the treachery of the betrayer here, that he sat so close to Jesus at this meal he could eat from the same bowl as it were, and yet he was going to betray him that very night. And in that betrayal, Judas was revealing that Jesus to him was not and would never be the Lamb of God who took away his sins. Our Lord makes it clear to them, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Notice that. Sovereignty of God, plan of God, prophecy of God. The Son of Man is going to go as it's written of him. This has been planned. But then what does he say? But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It's going to happen because God has determined it's going to happen. He's prophesied it. It will come to pass. But woe to the man by whom it comes to pass. Sovereignty and responsibility in perfect harmony. Judas, his conscience is pricked. Not to the point of repentance, you'll note. Asks, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus privately says to him, you have said so. Friends, we'll come back to the theology of Passover in a moment. Consider what this moment was for all the apostles. And then consider peculiarly what this moment was for Judas. From disciple to betrayer, from apostle to apostate. There were none closer to Jesus than the apostles. Presumably Judas, like the others, had cast out demons, had gone on preaching tours, and so on and so forth. He had done all that. He sat at table eating Passover with the Lord. And he's an apostate. The Christ betrayer. So much so is his name synonymous with betrayal and treachery that if you want to be particularly cruel to someone today because of their disloyalty, you'll call them a Judas. He was there with the Savior, eating a meal with the Savior, and he knew the Savior not. That's a salutary warning to all of us here this day. You can be an apostle of Christ and be apostate. You can be the in the inner circle of inner circles and still be as far away from the Savior as is possible. Examine yourself. Examine your heart to see whether you be of faith. It's while our Lord is speaking on this matter, as they're eating that Passover meal, that he then institutes the Lord's Supper and I've termed this a prophetical Lord's Supper. I'll explain why. What's Jesus doing? They're eating the meal. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, the words of which we are very familiar. During Passover meal, he begins another meal. The Lord's Supper that he's introducing here is superseding Passover. It's not just superseding Passover, though. It's superseding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if we had time, we'd see that the Lord's Supper supersedes all the Old Covenant feasts. This is how magnificent the Supper is. What's going on here? You see, Passover is in view clearly. But as I've said, so is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 17, it's the first day of unleavened bread. That's a seven-day period. Uh, Just as God commanded the Israelites to to, to, to cook cakes of unleavened bread and make sure all the leaven is out of their house, cook, eat it in haste, leave in haste when the time had come, Uh, that was a picture, of course, that they would remove leaven, the leaven of sin, from their lives. The signification is clear, the day of deliverance for the Israelites from Egypt was with Passover and unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread then celebrates the exodus out of Egypt, the removal of themselves from bondage to slavery. But our Lord is also teaching in the timing of this that Lord's Supper supersedes Passover. We've already talked about Passover in its theology, but let's remember the night of Passover was when the angel of death passed over, not only the, but passed over the children of Israel and brought judgment to every house with the slaying of the firstborn. We ought to remember that wasn't an ethnic thing. The Israelites didn't get a pass because they were Israelites. They got a pass because they took the blood of the lamb and painted it on the lintels and doorposts. In other words, they would also have faced the same judgment for sin had they not obeyed God. In other words, Passover, though it protected the Israelites, really should have pointed them to their own need for a savior that God has provided in the lamb a saviour for them. It taught them they were as much under the curse of sin as the Egyptians whose firstborn were dying were under the curse of sin. In other words, Passover should have caused them to look forward. The passage is telling us that the Lord's Supper is replacing, and it didn't happen immediately that very night, of the coming years, Lord's Supper replaced the Passover. Lord's Supper replaced the feast of unleavened bread. We ought to see the principles of Passover and the principles of feast of unleavened bread, therefore in the supper which fulfills it. Notice verse 26: Jesus takes bread, breaks it, and he gives us those familiar words: take, eat, this is my body which is for you. He also takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he tells them, verse 29, we're going to come back to those verses. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I I think there could be echoes of resurrection life, but I think certainly our Lord is looking further beyond that. He's looking, I think, to heaven. And what our Lord is saying there in verse 29 is that there is a progression of covenant meals, a progression of festivals, Passover, many other old covenant festivals and fields, uh, feasts, sorry, superseded by the Lord's Supper. But he's saying to us, the Lord's Supper is not the final feast either. There's something greater than the supper to come. That's the marriage feast of the Lamb in eternity. He's anticipating that glorious feast, where all traces of sin and sorrow and death and betrayal will have been far removed from all the inhabitants of the new heavens and new earth. He's thereby teaching us that our perspective when we come to the supper should be threefold. Threefold. We should look back. Do this in remembrance of me. How can we not look back? We take the bread, we drink the wine in remembrance of what our Lord did. A real death, a real sacrifice for real sinners. That's us. We're to look back. Just like Passover with unleavened bread, they were to look to the present. That the Lord's Supper has become unto us a means of grace. That is to say, when we take the supper, uh, we are experiencing, we are knowing the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the benefits of Christ's work to us. Uh, we, We are removing from ourselves, or we should be, before, during, and after we come to the supper, removing from ourselves the leaven of our life. There is a present lens that we look upon the supper, but there is a future lens also. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ is coming. Every time we take the supper, we are saying, each one of us, Jesus Christ is coming again, and his coming will not be as his first coming. He's going to come in power and glory, and no one will mistake him to bring in that new and glorious age where we will share communion and fellowship with the triune God forever. Our communion service, friends, and the practice of the Lord's Supper calls us to reflect deeply. And I want you to hear this very carefully. Please pay attention to this. It calls us to deep reflection. Actually, walking through those doors every Sunday, should call us to deep reflection. It calls us to look back, to look to the present, to look to the future. It calls us every week in worship and in the Lord's Supper when we celebrate it to examine ourselves, to ready ourselves, to ready ourselves to see whether we be worthy. And that's not a worthiness of a righteousness of our own. Don't make that mistake. We're looking to Christ constantly. When we're called to look at ourselves, what do we see? Sin and misery. And when we look at Christ, what do we see? Glorious, blessed righteousness. Forgiveness of sins. Which, of course, is what this supper points us to. Our Lord says this. He says, this is my body, which is for you. He says there in verse 28 this is my blood of the covenant one writer makes the observation jesus here takes the passover lamb off the table and lays himself on the same table john chapter 5 john chapter 6 he speaks of feeding on christ Being so united to Christ, having taken of Christ, it is akin to eating of him. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. He says, if you don't do that, you have no life in him. And he's not talking about the supper principally. He's talking about, are you united to Christ? Jesus says to the believer in every supper, he says it here, take, eat. He's talking spiritually, of course but the image is real we have bread we take it we eat it we know that that food even in a very small way nourishes us jesus is saying to the christian eat of me drink of my blood digest the glorious son of god this is for you he says Not only do it in remembrance of me, but allow me in that moment to pour out grace upon grace from heaven above. And he does the same every Sunday, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, which is why you should be here. Unless you're providentially hindered from coming to church, you should be in church. because there jesus says feed on me he says this is my body for you would you turn up an opportunity to feed on christ dear friend just think on that there are real reasons not to be in god's house at times and in different stages of our life we find those reasons might be more or less prevalent of course there are sickness of course all those things. But friends, think what our Lord is doing for us and how. It's offering himself to you. And think what happens when the table is laid before us. The table is just another way of what's going on here now. Another sermon given to us to remind us of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the bread and wine actually represent tangible realities. They represent the tangible replacement of Jesus Christ with the myriad, the thousands, the ten thousands upon ten thousands of sacrificial lambs of the Old Covenant. They're all gone. They're all gone. And there is but one Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we get to the cross, it's not one big animal being sacrificed. It's not even a very good person being sacrificed. It's the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, laying down his life. He is the Passover lamb without spot or blemish. He finishes Passover observance. That's why Christians should never celebrate Passover. Its actually a fad amongst some Christians to celebrate Jewish festivals. I trust it's none of you. If it is, if you celebrate Passover, you're on the verge of denying what Christ has done, please don't do it. He's given you a new meal. It's the Lord's Supper. He's come once for all to do away. With Passover, to do away with Feast of Unleavened Bread, to do away with the Old Covenant meal at Ex- Exodus 24, to do a- away with all the other meals and rites of the Old Covenant. And he's actually come to do what those things said he would do and could not do in themselves take away sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just for the Passover celebrating Jews or Israelites, but for the world. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, that whoever so should receive him might have their sins forgiven. That's what he means, and this is my body, this is my blood. God sealed his covenants with blood, but he only sealed one covenant with the blood of his son. The new covenant it's god's way of showing how certain and sure his covenant purposes of salvation are if we could have been sure of the forgiveness of sins with the blood of the lamb how much more certain should we be with the blood of christ i want to ask any of you if you doubt your salvation On what grounds do you doubt your salvation? Is it because you can't live a holy enough life? Well, join the club. Not one of us can. Or is it because you doubt Jesus? Hear this. He says, this is my body. This is my blood for you. And that same body with that same blood was raised three days later. There's the assurance that his work is effective. There's the assurance that his work is real. Friends, if you have Christ today, you have a sure foundation for peace with God. You want peace with him, you want victory over sin, death, and Satan, believe on this Lord Jesus Christ, the Paschal Lamb. And if you're not here today trusting in Christ, why not? What's stopping you? This very day, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Believe while you have the time, while you have the opportunity. Now, trust him. He brings full salvation. He brings full forgiveness of sin. He gives you a righteousness that you can't produce yourself. He grants you the key to heaven. Believe in him this day and rejoice. Rejoice. You see, this is the pivotal moment that's about to happen in all of redemptive history. The death of our Savior and then his resurrection. If you receive this Christ, you'll be on the right side of history. You'll be on the right side of eternity because you'll be on the right side of God. It's not just Passover, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about putting sin away from us. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice the connection there between holy living and Christ's death. He continues, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, friends, if you're a Christian here today and you're not putting sin to death in your life, you ought to ask yourself if you're a Christian. And if you are a Christian here today and you're struggling to put sin to death, I won't ask for hands to go up because every hand should go up. If you're struggling to put sin to death, listen. Why do you put sin to death? Christ has died. The power resides not in you, you see, to put sin to death. Christ has died. He's raised from the dead. What does he do? He pours out his spirit onto the church and into the individual, thereby empowering us. To put sin to death, remove from our lives the leaven of sin. His power, his work, you've got something to do, but do it in his power. Put sin to death in the power of the risen Christ. Friends, do you not see the fullness of the Savior here? The completeness of his work? The grace found in the supper? The supper which summarizes Passover, Unleavened Bread, all the Old Covenant feasts. Friends, the supper as ordained by Christ calls us to see the humiliation of our Savior and the exalted glory of our Savior. And as you receive Him, you receive His Spirit, by whom you can and should put to death the deeds of the flesh god grant us grace to do so let's pray almighty god we bless you lord christ we exalt your name and we stand in awe of you this day so full of grace so full of love so full of humility and yet now crowned with glory. Fill us with these words. Fill us with these truths that we, your people, Lord God, might trust you and know you and love you, and that we, Lord God, might seek to live obedient lives in the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.